Grace and peace. Thank you for tuning in. We are so blessed and so happy to be able to worship with you today. I would think that my brothers would agree with me. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, when, I, when I was in seminary, there was this vending machine on campus that we would go to in between our classes to grab a drink. And we would pop in our coins and select the drink. And everyone knew that the drink wouldn't automatically come out, that we would have to hit it a couple times, maybe shake the machine. At times, it was actually comic. You would have a line of five people, you know, all putting their coins in, kicking the machine, shaking the machine, and eventually their drink would come out. Um, there are certain truths about ourselves and about God that need to be beaten into our hearts. Luther actually talks about that. So that the penny would eventually drop. You know, I think that that's why God uses storms in our lives is to shake us so that we would eventually get it because we don't get it. Mm-hmm. Do we, Carter? No, it's, it's exactly right, Felipe. And in our episode this week in the same boat, we see that truth in Jonah chapter 1, verse 7 through 17, that God uses the storm to shake Jonah awake and to, to beat the truth into his heart and his mind, and the sailors as well. And that's taking place here in this passage that we have today. Well, we're going to get into the passage. So we're, we're still in chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 7 through 17. This is what God's Word says to us. And they... They said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know It is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay it not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. You know, today we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn uh, storms, right? We're going to learn how storms expose our identity. We're going to learn how storms reveal what we worship. And we're going to learn how storms make known our need for a Savior. So, so let's look at how storms expose our identity because it must have been embarrassing for Jonah here to declare himself to be a man of God. We know what it feels like to, you know, to stand and, and, then, and, then, and then have the ability to stand and how hard it is to stand when we've completely blown our testimony. They questioned his, his profession. They asked him, what is, it, what is it you do for a living? They questioned his pedigree. 
Where do you come from? How can a running, a, a, a disobedient man of God claim to be a man of God from God's country? That's impossible. And by the way, what is your country? Where do you come from? You know, Jonah was from the promised land. You know, but he wasn't living like a worshiper of God. They questioned his profession, his pedigree. They even questioned his purpose. Why have you done this? They seemed surprised that anyone would act so careless and so foolish and at the same time claim they know God. Teaching us that if we're serious about the work of the Lord, if we're honestly and seriously about the work of God, then the world has every right to question us when we're not, question our reality when we're not living up to it. They've got every right to question it. They, they, in fact, they'd prefer that we'd leave them alone if we're going to be so out of touch and irrelevant to their problems. If we claim to know who God is, then we can't allow ourselves to forget who we are and who we're called to be. We're people saved by grace. Mm-hmm. We're people who are equipped for every good work. We are, we're eternally saved. We're heaven-bound. We're hell-proofed. We're people that God is calling us to minister to people who are not like us. And the truth is this. Our activity should match our identity. Our activity should match, or in other words, the, the, the way that people should see how much we love God is how much we love them. Our vertical should match our horizontal, but sin. You've been talking about that word, but, for a couple of weeks. But sin and disobedience will always cloud our testimony. And in light of the text, it'll do this in two ways. It'll cause our lips to be silent. And it will cause us to ignore the very people that God is calling us to love. Jonah wasn't living up to being a prophet. Jonah wasn't living up to being a Jew in the text here. And watch this. The man who was sent to save the lost is now being saved by the lost. Hmm. Talk about shattering, uh, shattering stereotypes here. You see, the sailors, when they ask him for name, rank, and serial number, sir, right, They're asking him this question. They saw this as a religious issue, a religious matter. And so they first, they prayed to their gods for deliverance. And when that didn't work, they enlisted Jonah to pray to his God for deliverance. And when that didn't work, what did they do? They they immediately concluded that the reason their prayers weren't being answered was due to some unidentified sin, which offended one of the gods. And so they rolled the dice to find out who was at fault. And when they find out that it was Jonah, even in the process of the boat breaking up, even in the, 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 the imminent danger that they all found themselves in, even as time was running out, the first thing that comes out of Jonah's mouth was the foundation on which he built his life upon. I am a Hebrew. Hmm. Now, I know you all know this, but sometimes, like you said in the intro, Philippe, storms have a way of revealing what's most important to us. Sometimes hardships and trials have a way of revealing what's most important to us. And sadly, for a lot of us, church, our faith is not the main thing that we are building our identity around. And here's why this matters. Here's why this is important, because if you base your identity on anything other than your faith in Jesus, if you base it on your achievements, if you base it on your performance, if you base it on this particular text, on your ethnicity, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a tendency to reinforce that by contrasting, by contrasting yourself with and even sometimes being hostile to people who are different than you. What are you building your identity around? Because I'll tell you what you're made out of. I could tell you what you're made out of, Carter. I could tell you what you're made out of, Felipe, when the storms come. You wanted to work things out. You wanted to be friends. You wanted the relationship. But when the storm came, I apologized, and you continued being angry. I am? (laughs) (laughs) You you wanted some kids. 
speaking metaphorically here. You wanted, I got a bunch of <laughs> You wanted to build a family. And when, and when the storm came, you left and I stayed. Storms have a way of revealing our identity. Our identity. Church, let me ask you something. Who is suffering? Who is suffering in your life for the lack of something you're refusing to give? Mm. A mercy that you think is yours, that you think is yours to own. I can't, sometimes I, I wonder what would cause some of us to sit by in complete arrogance and wait for people to crumble because we feel a certain way. And to be clear, I'm talking about just plain love and compassion. I'm talking about our ability to care about people. I'm talking about families who are, being, who are right now being destroyed and dismantled and disrupted while we're sitting up arguing on Twitter about who's right and who's wrong. I'm, t- I'm talking about trauma. Trauma that's inflicted on people who, who have been traumatized, evil epithets that, that I've seen in our history that I thought I would never see in my lifetime. I'm talking about our country, right, being on the verge of another civil war and nobody caring about anything but winning polls and elections. Mm-hmm. If God is measuring our faith, church, in how we treat people who are racially different from us, who are religiously different from us, then how deep are we? Mm-hmm. How deep is our faith? You don't have to be of a certain political persuasion to be human. Hmm. You don't have to be right and left to care about people, to love people, right? Can somebody just make sure I'm okay? Can somebody just make sure my children are okay? Can somebody just care about me whether I live or die? Somebody who, who, who loves me so much about whether I live that they're not going to stand there with their cell phone recording and watching me die so this is a great trauma this country is experiencing now. And so God provides the storm. Here's a sidebar. God's providence, by the way, is not primarily to console us or to encourage us. It's to illuminate us so that we can look inward to our greatest spiritual need. It's like a divine mirror. God provides a storm. In verse 17, he provided a whale. We're going to get into the weeks to come. He's going to keep providing for Jonah. Providing things so that Jonah, this is the book of Jonah. It's not the book of Nineveh. Jonah's the villain here. It's the book of Jonah. And he's providing to Jonah uh, uh, in order to reveal the inner condition of his heart. Here's Jonah's problem. Jonah would rather conform God to his image than the other way around. This is what he wants. And church, do you see this? Do you see this application in your life? And if you do, let me tell you something. God is far more concerned with the salvation of the lost than he is about preserving the reputation of those who are saved. When the storm comes, if the first words out of your mouth is, I'm a Christian, if that's the first words out of your mouth, then know this, that everything you say and everything you do should be said and done with a view to honoring Jesus in order for him to become the foundation and the goal and the focus and the only hope of real change. Wow. So good, Sam. Storms reveal our identity, and I think we're all facing that. Yeah. And they reveal also what we worship. Mm-hmm. You know, our identity affects our worship, and the storms reveal that. In verse 10, if you want to read with me, it says this, that the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, to Jonah, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The storm has exposed Jonah's misguided worship. Jonah has run away from the presence of the Lord, has been to worship himself and his comforts and his agenda and how he believes that God should look and act. And the sailors start to rebuke him. How ironic is that? 
Jonah, a prophet of God, who one of the key aspects of his life and his ministry and his calling would be to rebuke other people for misguided worship is now being rebuked for having misguided worship. Another stereotype. So interesting. And as he begins to be rebuked, they say to him, what have you done? Jonah, you have failed to prioritize your God. You have failed to root your identity in who God is. And now that your God has brought about this storm, what have you done? See, though Jonah, his worship is misguided, he's still worshiping because we all worship something. There's a great quote by um, an American scholar, was an American scholar and brilliant thinker, David Foster Wallace. And he says this about worship. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. We all worship. The question is, what do we worship? Whether you are a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or agnostic or you identify as a generally spiritual person, we all worship. There is something that we give supreme value to, that we prioritize over everything else. There is something that we give our time and our attention and our money to above other things, and we will worship that thing that is in the highest seat, that is in the center of our heart. And the only choice that we get is what do we worship? And David Foster Wallace says, it's preferable to worship a God or a spiritual type of thing. Why? Because only something that is other, only something that is supremely powerful, only something that is incorruptible is worthy of worship, is worthy of that type of value and honor because everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money, you'll never have enough money. It will eat you alive. If you worship politics, policies and politicians will fail and disappoint you and it will eat you alive. If you worship your work, you will always have another level to achieve and when you fail, it will crush you. If you worship beauty and sexuality, you will struggle with feeling ugly and not good enough and time will expose your insecurity as you age. If you worship comfort, storms will come and rob you of your comfort. If you worship anything other than something that is worthy of that place and that seat of your heart, it will eat you alive. And the sailors look to Jonah, who has this misguided worship, and the sailors say, what have you done? You have exchanged the living God who has brought about this storm, who is deserving of worship and honor for what? Nationalism. For nationalism. What have you done, Jonah? And it is eating him alive, emotionally, spiritually, and it eats him alive physically when the whale swallows him up. You see, what you supremely value affects your attitude and your actions in adversity. What you supremely value affects your attitude and your actions in adversity. When the storm comes and adversity comes, it will reveal what you worship. Because worship is the attitude and the actions that you demonstrate affected by what you prioritize. So whatever is the chief priority, whatever is your chief value, that will affect your attitude and your actions. And when the storm comes, it will reveal that. 
what you worship. And that's why worship is the most powerful thing in the world. Because worship affects who you are. You become what you worship. What you worship affects who you become, who you are becoming. Psalm 115 uh, verse 8 says that you will become what you trust in. What you trust in, what you value, what you honor, what you give your time attention to is who you will become. We have a great phrase here uh, in, our, in our society, and that is you are what you eat, which is why we know that Sam is ice cream. Because <laughs> no man, Chocolate, no please. person eats more ice cream than Sam Miranda. I mean, we were at, at Passione, at Brickell City Center meeting, and about two weeks ago, it's 3.30 in the afternoon, he church. He eats fried chicken with ice cream. Yeah, it's I've unbelievable. 3.30 it. in the afternoon, we're having coffee, and he goes to haagen to get a Sunday. <laughs> I mean, you are what you eat. <laughs> unbelievable. But it's a, funny, it's a funny phrase, it's a funny saying, but it's true, and it's, it's, it's actually helpful because it reminds you, especially, you know, we teach our children, it reminds you that what you eat affects your health. It affects you physically. If you eat healthy, you'll be healthy. If you eat unhealthy, you'll be unhealthy. And culturally, we are very aware of what we eat. We have a growing awareness of health. We want to know where things are from and what's the nutrient count and how was it, how was it treated and are there pesticides. We want to know all of that because we know you are what you eat. But culturally, we do not have an awareness that we are what we worship. We have no awareness of that until the storm comes. And the storm reveals who we are, reveals our identity, as you said, Sam, and reveals what we worship. We don't have that awareness. And it challenges us as the storms rage, as this storm right now is raging. It is challenging, whether it is the pandemic that is causing job uncertainty, it's causing relational tension, it's causing health concerns, or whether it is the racial tension and injustice, it is challenging us. Who are we? Who are we becoming? What do we worship? And the reality is that we are all in the same boat. Yeah. We're all in the same boat here in this storm. And we are feeling overwhelmed. We are feeling uh, maybe so, a deep sense of pain or anxiety. We are, are navigating difficult conversations with friends and family members. We're touching into uncomfortable places and opinions and perspectives that we've never seen before. And we're not used to it. We're used to a culture where you say, how are you doing? Fine. How are you doing? Fine. And we're not there anymore. That is gone. The storm is revealing who we are and what we worship. What are our priorities? And it seems like there are a lot of different sailors that are screaming out to us. And they're saying, what have you done? And our response wants to be, I haven't done anything. It's a very, you can get defensive with that, what have you done? But we need to be like Jonah and listen. Say, who am I? Where is my identity rooted? As you said, Sam. Who am I becoming? What do I worship? What do I prioritize? Because worshiping God in the storm is not comfortable. It's challenging to worship God in the storm. You see, if you are feeling right now, church, like I just, I just want everything to go back to quote unquote normal. I just want to get to a more comfortable place. I just want all of this to be over. Or if you feel if you're honest, like you have a spirit of apathy right now or a spirit of resentfulness or a spirit of division, it may be time to listen out and to see if sailors are saying, if there are voices saying, what have you done? Have you replaced a holy God that 
preaches good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed for a God who, as you said, Sam, is more comfortable and fits your agenda? Have you replaced the Christian call to mourn with those who mourn with mourning has a time limit and then it's time for you to get over it? Have you replaced the Christian virtue of humility and patience with one of critique and one of division? Have you replaced God with something else in the center of your heart and life? In church, I believe that if, if we would begin to evaluate where our identity is root, rooted and what are we worshiping and who are we becoming, and we begin to march back to worshiping God and placing him in the center of our life, in the center of our heart, in the center of all that we are, deserving of all of our time and attention because he's the only one worthy, we will hear his call to us in the midst of the storm. See, there's a passage I've been reflecting on this week in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And I believe that this is who we are to become. I believe this is what God is saying to us as a church. This is, these are Jesus' words as he reads from the Old Testament. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. And this same spirit that is upon Christ is the same spirit that we have. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. We have the same power. We have the same mission. And that is a mission to proclaim, to use our voice. It is a mission to bring recovery. That is healing. It is a mission to set free. That is to bring justice. And so what are we called to do in this time? What is God saying? Who are we to become as we begin to worship God and place him in the center we're to be people who use our voice to bring healing and to bring justice and to set free those who are oppressed. Mm. Now, Carter, one of the things that, uh, that you brought up in uh, this point was the quote from David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Who, by the way, he was an atheist. I don't know if you knew this, but yeah. he was an atheist. And uh, such a deep insight into our hearts. The problem with worshiping the wrong thing is that you will eventually, and the, the quote says, you know, you'll be disappointed, right? Yeah. Because when storms come, they will prove themselves unable to rescue and to save you. Mm. And so uh, one of the things that storms reveal to us, that, that storms make known to us, is, is our need for a Savior. Mm -hmm. So this passage starts at a very low point. There's a loss of hope. In verse 11 the sailors come to Jonah and they ask, what, what shall we do? Because these experienced sailors, they've tried everything. They're desperate. They've tried um, taking the water out of the ship. They have tried piecing the ship back together. They have tried uh, dropping cargo out of the ship. They have prayed to their own gods, as you mentioned, Sam, They've tried everything. There's nothing left to do. And now they're in this big trouble. They're in this chaotic situation. They're about to lose their lives. They're, they know that the end is near, uh, which is an insight of what sin does. Sin is destructive. Mm -hmm. uh, sin hurts our relationship with God. God is a holy God. The reason why they're going through this storm is because God is angry at the sin of rebellion that Jonah has committed. See, sin disrupts our relationship with God. It hurts our relationship with God. But sin also hurts us. Mm -hmm. 
See, if you sin, you will hurt and you will harm yourself. And God is angry and he's disappointed and upset at that because God loves you. If you commit a crime, you will have to pay for that crime. But you will not only hurt yourself, you will hurt those around you as well because they will be affected by the consequences of your sin. And these sailors are now being affected by the consequence of Jonah's sin. And so Jonah responds in verse 12, and he says, I have a solution. This may be the only solution. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sailors think that that's a radical solution. They think, it's the, they, 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 they think that this is too radical. And so they try to row the ship one more time back into the shore to no success, which means that there's only one solution left. Now, oftentimes, church, when we are at our lowest, we find the greatest opportunity for hope. Because when you have hit rock bottom and you're at your lowest, you can't go any further down. And you look around and you've tried everything like the sailors. Hmm. You've gone to all of the counselors. You've read all of the books. You have gone to every single program. And your life is falling apart as this ship in this storm is falling apart. And you've tried everything. You, you can't look down anymore. You can't look around. There's only one place left to look, and that is up. Hmm. And so they end up looking up. And hope begins to rise here in this story. And it starts, it starts with Jonah. Let's reflect back on Jonah's statement. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. You know, commentators have debated what's going on here in Jonah's heart. Some are saying he is now finally obeying God. Other commentators say he is insisting in his disobedience because he would rather drown than fulfill his mission of going to the Ninevites. And I don't think that the truth is on either end of the spectrum. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think Jonah is still resistant to the mission that God has given him. But I think that he's taking some baby steps towards obedience. And the way in which we see this is because his heart now begins to turn. See, Jonah begins to find empathy for those sailors. He is beginning to think about someone else's problem other than himself. Because up to this point, all he's thinking of is of himself. And now he's finding empathy in these sailors who are desperate and who are dying because of his sin. And he's thinking to himself, it's not fair that you guys die in my place. I should be dying in your place instead. See, when we, when we begin to acknowledge people's pain, when we begin to look around and acknowledge people's pain, and especially own the part that we have in causing that pain into people's lives, that's the beginning of hope. That's where repentance starts, with owning your sin and acknowledging your place in the destruction and the brokenness in this world. A church, do you acknowledge your place in the middle of this whole mess? Are we owning our sin and the pain that we may have been causing others? There's hope there. Here's another piece of truth. 
If we want people's hearts to turn to God, our hearts need to begin to turn towards them. You know, this year is still the year of the Focus One campaign. And one of the things that we've been saying all throughout this year is that people do not get argued into belief. People get loved into belief. And so the little bit of selflessness, the little bit of sacrifice that Jonah is showcasing here in this story to these pagan sailors, they begin now to turn to God. And faith begins to be birthed into their lives and in their hearts. Why? Because now we read in verse 14 that they're crying out to God. Not to their gods, not to their God, but they're crying out to Jonah's God. And they're crying out to Jonah's God and calling him Lord. The, that's the, the Hebrew translation, the English translation for the Hebrew term Yahweh, which is God's covenantal name. He could have used Elohim or El. These are Hebrew names for God. But they call God upon God's covenantal name. This is the God who has vowed to love his people regardless of their sin. It's the name that God speaks to Abraham and to Moses in the burning bush. The reason why I'm delivering you and my people is because I have made the commitment to always love you. And these sailors are now crying out to God by this name, by God's covenantal name. They are acknowledging that he is the only powerful and loving God that can save us or that can save them at that very moment. He is the only powerful and loving God that can save him at that very moment. They're acknowledging, moreover, that if they are to be saved, it's going to have to be through the means of substitution. They acknowledge that the reason why they're in that place is because of the sin of one man, and if they're going to get out of that situation, it's got to be through the life of another. Oh, man. That gives us an insight to the gospel, to what the Bible says about the doctrine of salvation, that we are saved not through our works, we're not even saved through our prayers. We're not even saved through our faithfulness. Mm-hmm. But we're saved through the faithfulness of another. Mm-hmm. Our salvation is by the means of a substitute. Mm-hmm. See, what we've been saying, in church, all throughout this series is that this story is pointing us to the greater narrative of the Bible. It's pointing us to the main theme of the Bible which is that uh, God created a beautiful world. We have made bad choices. The world has fallen, and God is redeeming the world through the person of Jesus Christ. And one day he will restore all things. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus makes this comparison between him and Jonah. He says that a greater than Jonah was amongst the people that he was talking to at that very time. And I love how Jesus relates his ministry and his mission to the story of Jonah because what he is revealing to us 
is the way in which he has come to save us is by giving his life for our sakes. He is the greater Jonah because he throws himself into the sea voluntarily, not because there is pressure to do so, like in this story, Jonah is pressured to do that. Unless he does that, everyone perishes, but he does that voluntarily. He is not the cause of the storm. Jonah is the cause of the storm. He is not the cause of the storm. And he does that, and he jumps into the ultimate storm that can truly kill us. The storm of God's wrath that can make us sink and drown to the bottom of hell. And he jumps on our behalf. And unlike Jonah, who is rescued, he is not rescued so that when we go through our storms in this life, who are, by the way, not compared to the storm that Jesus went through on the cross. When we go through our storms and we cry out to God like these sailors are crying here, he comes to our rescue. Mm -hmm. That's why Jesus did what he has done. And when you believe this and when you acknowledge that which Jesus has done for us, fear begins to leave your heart. You know, there's a lot of people that are afraid during this crisis. Afraid of being shipwrecked financially, in their marriages, their lives, even their health. Man, many of us are afraid that our country will be torn apart. We are afraid. How do we deal and we cope with that fear? How do we do away with that fear? is by believing on that which Jesus Christ has done for you and by crying out to God. See, when you do that, what the sailors have have done here in this passage, fear, the the bad type of fear leaves your heart and your heart is now taken with the good type of fear. They're filled with the sense of awe and worship and the sea calms down. They're experiencing peace. You want to experience this peace? You want to stand in awe of God? Cry out to him. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you have been through, regardless of where you find yourself here today, let me tell you something. If there is hope for Jonah and hope for these sailors, there's hope for you and I here today as well. If God hears the cries and the prayers of this disobedient prophet, if God hears the cries and the prayers of these pagan sailors, he hears your prayer here today as well. And you can cry out to him, and he will come out to rescue and to save you. So if you're hearing this for the first time today, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Some of you have believed this message, the message of the gospel that we have just talked about but you are failing to live it out. And I want you to reorient your hearts today to this basic truth of the gospel, that your salvation has come at the cost of the life of another, the life of Jesus Christ. And so you pray this prayer with us here today as well, okay? Will you pray with us? Mm-hmm. Pray this. Father, We cry out to you today. Father, I acknowledge my disobedience. I acknowledge 
my disobedience displayed in my failure, not only in loving you, but in loving others as well. Father, I recognize what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. He has thrown himself into the only storm that can permanently drown us so that when we cry out to you during this storm, you would hear us. Father, may faith be birthed in my heart today like it was birthed in the lives of these sailors that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have prayed this prayer with me today, I would encourage you to reach out to our team. There's a link being posted now in the comment section. Click that link, fill that connection card, and let us know. We would like to help you and come alongside you in this new journey of faith. God bless you.